Okay. I believe we are recording our first episode of Growing Down Podcast. Uh, here are my co-hosts, Ryan and Matt. Hey, guys. Hey. Uh, and uh, my name is Jeremy. And yeah, we uh, we are kind of doing this on the fly, but uh, we decided to record our first podcast to talk about what the show is about, uh, what are the kind of topics we're going to be going over, and what our intentions are in terms of, you know, uh, our motivations for putting this thing together. So I don't know. Do, where do we want to start, guys? I mean, there's just so much going on right now. There is? What's going on? I don't know. <laughs> something about a plague or Oh, yeah. That, that thing. Yeah. 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 Um, maybe, maybe we can start by first speaking for ourselves, why we wanted to start this podcast, what were some inspiring ideas that drew us to this kind of organically. And then we can go into why we decided to call it the Growing Down podcast and some of the political implications of the title. Mm-hmm. You want to go first, Ryan? Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, you know, just a little background context, right? We have our integral Discord group where we have a lot of lively conversations about politics and all kind of other topics related to integral. And for me, uh, or, or I think for a lot of us too, we talked about... Our, our progressive left-wing, you know, very pro-Bernie Sanders uh, type of politics and how our political views differ a lot from kind of the quote-unquote mainstream establishment integralists uh, like Jeff Salzman or um, Rob, uh, Mark Foreman. And I think we, we have a, part of it is a, a generational difference, right? We're kind of younger people who have kind of or follow a lot of alternative media more than watching mainstream media like CNN or MSNBC. So I think we have a very different perspective and, and kind of different a different sense of how our political landscape is unfolding, at least ever since Trump got elected. And then we can bring those insights and those perspectives and inform it with an integral lens. And I think you'll have some very, very different takes than what you hear from some of the more uh, loud and integral voices that tend to favor more kind of centrist or establishment type of politics. Mm-hmm. And so part of the interest for me in doing this podcast was to kind of get our voice out there. And, you know, Jeremy and I started our integral left uh, Facebook group, which has really been growing. So there's, uh, it's obvious that there's a lot of demand for this kind of conversation and this kind of political analysis, progressive, uh, anti-establishment, populist left, integral politics. And that's kind of uh, the what's exciting excited me most about starting this with you guys. Uh, amen, amen, Ryan. That's uh, pretty on point for me. Matt, do you want to go? Want to go next, and then I'll go. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> kind of not sure where to fill in there. Obviously, I think we started this idea prior to the impact of the coronavirus, so I think that has kind of altered things a little bit. But just kind of recapping, sort of what Ryan said. Um, For those people that aren't familiar with integral theory, I don't think we're going to go too much in depth, at least in this episode, about how it relates, but would recommend that people kind of search that and and get an idea of of what that framework looks like and how how you can apply it to politics. I think in addition to that, um, bringing in um, the idea of metamodernism and some of the ideas, especially with uh, Hansi's work and Nordic ideology of how that might establish another framework for the future of politics. And also just to comment on 
you know, I think we're still going to find our way as far as how does integral theory relate to sort of right-wing politics to centrists um, and how I think the ideal is that integral should be able to identify all the positive things of each worldview and, and really integrate those things. So we're not leaving people out, we're including people. But again, I really see it as separating the baby from the bathwater. What are the good things we can keep from each worldview and how do we sort of update that for our current world situation that we're in? Also well said. Um, you know, for me, I think uh, I'm framing it in this way because it's really fresh, but there's a bifurcation, I think, in the way that younger people are obtaining their news and their information. And we're seeing this in the United States, at least, in the way people are voting. And I really kind of want to lean into this bifurcation that's happening, this this split or divide between so-called progressives and moderates and conservatives. There's this emergent wing of progressives that I think have sort of surged for the first time in a long time. Uh, there's socioeconomic concerns that are that are both on the left and the right in terms of populism. Uh, we, we both, all of us have been speaking about like crystal ball and, and uh, the, the rise of populism in the left and the right in American politics. So, you know, there's a moment happening right now there's a bifurcation taking place and there's different ways different demographics are using and consuming media to come to certain political decisions and uh, political leanings. So I think as, as somebody who's a millennial, I think all of us are kind of around that age, maybe a little older, um, just in that demographic of consuming most of our, of our news and information online. I think there needs to be more, or it would be helpful to have more of a representation of millennial era integralists speaking about progressive ideas that don't sound very radical to us, but sound sort of like the new baseline. And, you know, as Terry Patton, who's a, a more notable integralist uh, author publisher has said, you know, the, the, the progressives are the future, right? So how do we lean into the future and how do we kind of give the progressive vision a little bit more room to breathe and to articulate and to even have conversations with more of the centrist integralists um, through this platform. And uh, Matt, you're mentioning also the, the, the necessity of kind of bringing in some other perspectives like uh, metamodernism. Um, I think we're going to be talking a lot about uh, different political theories on this podcast and just sort of bringing that into the discussion, right? This is really just about um, energizing the discussion about progressive politics and exploring how they might actually be integral. And that's the position I think we want to lean into, right? Because there's plenty of arguments that take a little bit more of a centrist position. And there's various reasons for that. And we're not really knocking that. We just we just kind of want more room for the progressive voice to kind of come forward, the integral progressive voice. Uh, so that's my take. Yeah, really well said, both of you guys. And I'll just jump off of that, Jeremy. And that I don't um, have a problem, per se, with some of the more mainstream integral voices and their conscious or unconscious uh, expounding of centrist type of politics. But I think it's good to be aware, as you said, of this bifurcation that's happening that could have uh, certain demographic implications with uh, you know, generational implications, generational differences between the millennials and the older folks, and how... I'm, I'm very happy to admit that I, I am biased in the sense that I am a millennial 
and I hardly ever watch mainstream media, right? I almost always just watch progressive left-wing YouTubers and right-wing YouTubers too. But um, this is this is kind of the perspective that we're offering. And we're trying to just say that this whole world, this whole value sphere of young progressive left-wing integral politics is a thing. It does exist. And that the more establishment mainstream media integral centrists uh, are only one major group. They're not the only group. Yeah. And uh, I think there's theoretical reasons for backing this position. And I think a lot of us feel this way from the metamodern Nordic ideology book that just came out from uh, Hansi to what I've been talking about with Bruno Latour's uh, Gaia regime and and the whole idea of coming down to earth, the politics of the terrestrial. I think there's there's much to be said about leaning into the progressive thinking in terms of, well, how do we reshape the world in the middle of a crisis? Because it actually does require us to lean, lean a little bit further into these progressive ideas and policies and values um, to substantiate them, right? To actually make them, to move them from an ideal about like, oh, we're just the youth and we want to see the future happening now because we're young and restless. It's it's really not about that. It, it's It's more of answering an emergency, right? It's answering an existential, sometimes material crisis that huge swaths of populations are now undergoing, especially during, you know, the, the coronavirus scare um, and epidemic. So, you know, I think I think what we're seeing, actually, and this is my argument too, like the, the progressive values are becoming, uh, they're growing up, right? They're, they're maturing, they're, they're finding translation into real policies and uh, as answers to larger and larger populations uh, as they enter into a kind of a economic and, and ecological crisis, right? So this is really a question of how do we grow down, right? That's, a, that's the name of this podcast, Growing Down, um, rather than emphasizing growing up. And I guess that's my Gibsarian coming in here a little bit, my Gibsarian take of Integral. Um, Gene Gebser, for those of you who are not familiar, he was one of these you know, foundational integral thinkers. Um, it's this idea that there's so much emphasis on growing up, showing up, cleaning up, etc. cetera. Uh, really, you know, there, what's missing in that dialogue and that framing is this sense of kind of growing down and, and emphasizing material realities, uh, physical space, intersubjective and social spaces, and translating a lot of these really kind of beautiful aspirational ideas into into a trans into a transformational culture, right? So how do we do that? Um, and so that's why we call this, for my take anyway, why we call this growing down. And that's a James Hillman term as well, um, where he talks about kind of ensoulment as a process of growing down, like growing our roots. And uh, yeah, so that's my take. So Jeremy, just uh, for our listeners, um, I think we've talked about a progressive vision, progressive ideas. Do we want to define what we mean by that? Sure. I think I think progressive, like uh, Steve McIntosh actually defines it fairly well um, in terms of like the, the different values that progressive have in terms of uh, addressing inequalities, addressing uh, climate and ecosystems, the non-human world and seeing us as integral to these living systems, but then also seeing human society as needing to reflect a more um, equitable 
more fair, more just uh, relation in, ter in terms of power structures, right? In terms of, you know, um, wealth inequality, uh, in terms of, you know, hegemony and imperialism, et cetera. These, these are kind of the, the progressive catchphrases that I think uh, we all uh, have a sense of and are semi-literate with. And I think it's good to have a center of gravity in the progressive sphere while also being an integralist and trying to interpret these things and translate these things and argue for them, right? Because there's so much there's so much critique of being a progressive or being green meme or being, you know, like, like too much into the pol the political uh, power sphere, seeing everything as different power dynamics. There's so much critique from the integral world of progressives that I think it's just about time that we, we own that value sphere and try to work with it. How do we differ than a oh, Biden Democrat? <laughs> oh, uh, well, I think a lot of, obviously, Ryan was mentioning, right, like that we're pretty much all Bernie supporters, not necessarily because we think Bernie is, is our, our savior or something, but just that he, his platform and his campaign is representing the bare minimum of really what needs to, to be achieved in terms of the, the, the crisis that our country is facing right now. And then also on the planetary scale, what our country needs to do, the United States, to to address the ecological uh, the ecological crisis which we're facing in this century. So yeah, I think we all believe in like Green New Deal. We might believe in universal basic income. We believe in more democratic socialist policies uh, to be enacted, and we see them as as the the in some sense the kind of leading edge, right? like the, what needs to be materialized in society right now to help things evolve. And that's where we're kind of really arguing for. Yeah. Yeah. Well said, Jeremy. Um, <clears throat> just one thing to add to the whole growing down idea. And this is something we've discussed before in our integral left Facebook group is that one of the critiques of Wilbur is that he's really an upper left quadrant genius, right? He's the Einstein of consciousness. But I do think it can be argued historically that the lower right quadrant, the practical material concerns of reality, the systems and structures that we're all embedded in, has been kind of underplayed or underemphasized in integral uh, theory. And so part of what I'm interested in doing is really bringing those systems and structures of the lower right quadrant to light and to point out how a lot of uh, the consciousness of, of whatever you want to call it, the worldviews or, or stages of development or whatever consciousness that these systems came out of, mostly a predominantly modernist, uh, rational, mental consciousness. Uh, it, it, it's interesting to think about how much we're stuck in that world because of these structures, because the, that consciousness has been so crystallized and ossified into these structures. Our economic system of capitalism and even our system of representative democracy that I've been really thinking a lot about lately and how if we really want to usher in the integral age and have a full-on integral revolution on Earth, we have to understand how so many of these existing institutional structures hold us back from getting there. And that mm -hmm. fundamentally changing them on a structural level, I think, is necessary to move the left-hand quadrant consciousness, collective consciousness of humanity forward into the integral age. Because uh, and to transform these structures as, as and use them as a grounding rod to instantiate and hold the new consciousness that we're aspiring to, and that that's mm -hmm. another thing that I'm I'm really passionate about is how do we kind of reverse engineer the process not first by 
changing our consciousness and then having the structures evolve in some kind of idealistic Hegelian sense, but almost in a more Marxist sense of changing the mm-hmm. systems and structures to be re- representative of the new consciousness. And therefore, that can have a bigger impact on transforming the collective, the cultural consciousness of humanity, uh, while also ma- preserving it so it's a lasting, it's, you know, changes lasting and not just like a cloud floating, floating by in the sky. Mm. Well said. Yeah, I think uh, kind of going off of that, uh, one of Ponzi's ideas, politics of theory, which is a uh, politics of narrative. So I think one of the things that I want this podcast to focus on is how do you energize the youth to go and vote? Because we just saw recently, you know, the youth aren't showing up to vote. And I think a lot of that has to do with narrative about how the mainstream media obviously I think is against Bernie Um, and we can maybe get into the reasons as to why that is, but a lot of it has to do with how do you, how do you make this narrative where um, these things can come online and make sense to the younger people so they they can feel energized to go out and vote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, That's, that's something that I've been considering today. Uh, This, the different, as I was mentioning as as my first point, uh, the, the different media ecologies that different age demographics utilize to consume their media and to interpret the news and to make make their votes. Um, you know, I think we're seeing that bifurcation occur where the majority of young people get their information from places like Twitter or watch, uh, you know, YouTube streamers, different, you know, progressive media internet spaces that are basically, they, they're all kind of popping up online they're not really seen offline on cable news networks. And I think cable news networks still kind of have an institutional uh, stronghold just on, on media consumption in aging demographics and in working class demographics. So, so we really had have to kind of navigate uh, a very interesting challenge in terms of um, the progressive agenda in the coming years, which is how do we translate this work out of our own media bubbles, right? Because that was a shock of, I think the the 20, 2019, 2020 campaign is that, you know, it doesn't seem like the youth is turning up to vote as much as we had hoped, number one. And then number two, instead, we have an aging demographic of baby boomers and uh, 45 years and up consuming traditional media spaces, traditional cable news, and going out and voting in a much larger turnout than 2016. So th- there's a kind of a... Uh, interesting question of how do we how do we navigate the evolution of communication mediums, right? And also, what are these? What is this evolution telling us about the way way things are going? And it may be the case that in ten or fifteen years, most of us there will be just more more progressives voting because we'll be an aging demographic using the internet instead of traditional cable. But I think the other the flip side of that is well, what do we do in the meanwhile? Because you know the are we going to really wait 10 or 15 years before any of these progressive agendas get passed in Congress? You know, are, are we really going to have to age out the older generation in the middle of a century of crisis, right? And there, there's so much that needs to be happening immediately. So yeah, these are, these are big questions. And um, these are the kind of things that I think we're, we're all, we're all considering right now in terms of being integralists, you know, there are certain demographic questions we have to ask ourselves, like, uh, you know, integralists coming from being maybe an aging demographic themselves. Maybe are, are there 
a lot of younger integralists out there right now? I, I don't really know. I don't know what the stats are, right, guys? So like, these are kind of the things that I want to explore together. Yeah, yeah, totally. And something that came to my mind was uh, how Kyle Kulinski from Secular Talk was talking about how for years and years and years, right, the corporate media, the mainstream media has monopolized the narrative. And for the first time, thanks to the internet, the people actually get a chance to speak back and on Twitter, on you know, YouTube, independent media channels like the Young Turks, right? There's this kind of grassroots, decentralized, and I think de facto populist fervor that's really energized and brought online by the internet. And we can now voice our opinions and say, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, that was a terrible, completely delusional <laughs> take, uh, on, especially, you know, as Matt alluded to, the smearing of, of Bernie Sanders and other progressive candidates like Yang and Tulsi and so forth. And I think that one of the problems that I see in terms of engaging young people, too, is, is how many people are just disengaged from politics in general. And something that breaks my heart the most is also the class divide and class implications of a lot of people, working class folks or younger working class folks uh, who are all mostly dominate like the gym that I go to when I'm in the sun at the gym talking to people, they're, they don't care about politics at all. Or, or they think that the whole thing is just a completely corrupt, sordid affair that they don't want to touch or they don't think their voice makes any kind of difference. And so for someone like Bernie Sanders, whose heart bleeds blue collar working class people and helping that demographic, those are the people who are not engaging, especially the young people there who could really benefit from things like higher minimum wage, universal health care, free college. They're the ones who are not voting or getting engaged and kind of hurting their own interests. And, and all of the Biden supporters, you know, or people who are, who are already well off, maybe a little older, you know, more white picket fence, suburban cul-de-sac types, those are the people who can have the, who have the luxury, time, and energy to research and go out and vote, watch mainstream media. Mm-hmm. And so there's still a very, I think, unequal class power imbalance with how a lot of centrist policies are perpetuated. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I think about a lot. And I don't know what Integral has to say about that specifically, but I do see that as a big problem uh, for the progressive movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think- oh, go ahead, Jeremy. No, you go ahead, Matt. I was just saying one of the things that I think a week or so ago we were all it was looking like it was Biden versus Trump, but I think the coronavirus has kind of presented an unfortunate opportunity, perhaps, where someone could step up and be a true leader. And I think Sanders has kind of stepped up, um, saying you know the president should have declared a national emergency a day before he actually did. Um, Biden's virtual phone call the other day was another walking mess, where you know they have Biden up here. Who, who really looks like he has some onset of dementia coming on. And, and, you know, there's definitely an opportunity here. I know back in 2008 is when Obama sort of took the reins and demonstrated he was going to be the real leader. So you have this another crisis happening, and there's no playbook for this. Um, prior to this, it was all the typical playbook. O- Obama made his calls, uh, got his, you know, the other Democratic candidates out of the running so to clear the way for Biden. But right now, I think there's an opportunity where, uh, you know, Sanders can step up, demonstrate he's going he's to be the, the leader. Um, and then also tomorrow's debate, I think, is really interesting to see kind of if Bernie can corner him in a sense. And I don't think Bernie's going to go low on, on Biden, but I think uh, there might be uh, an opportunity where Biden shows some cracks. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, maybe as as one of our our goals for this podcast as well is just to be kind of the the integral millennial ish uh, uh, platform in which to kind of cover all of these political events that are happening. Right? We have we have this election cycle going until the end, till like next November or so. So um, th- there's a lot that could unfold between now and then, and I think just broadcasting the conversations that we're already having on discord and the integral left forum and getting some authors and scholars in the mix with us to talk about this would be really good. Like we want to have uh, different integral thinkers on here. Uh, maybe we can get Michael Brooks on Steve McIntosh, hell, you know, even Jeff Salzman to come talk. Like we, we, we want to get into the mix. We want to have these kinds of uh, either, you know, really interesting or also really challenging conversations where we're exploring these ins and outs and these bifurcations and these possibilities together. Um, integrally informed as, as much as that, much as that phrase can, can be thrown. I I don't really know what that would mean in this context, except for, uh, our position, which is, you know, okay, we're looking at a planetary crisis, right? Where everything is really, um, from the economic systems to the uh, centralization of uh, the markets and the banks to the centralization of supply chains. These are big questions. And this this is how we're running our civilization right now. And it's not prepared for a planetary level system-wide crisis. So how is this crisis going to help us think differently? And how does it translate into some of these very basic um, demands for things like you know, uh, universal health care in the United States. Um, what is the evolutionary angle about all of this? Because I think we, we like to bypass the demands of so-called progressives and greens as uh, in the in the more the language of spiral dynamics, right? It's 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 first tier, right? Green is first tier. Uh, progressives are mostly first tier, so they're not something to really think about. Um, integralists can jump ahead and, and think about the systems wide dynamics and all of that, but what about right here? Like, let's come down to earth and, and think about what the situation is calling for, because we are being faced with a planetary crisis at the moment in how we organize our society and our systems. So how do we respond to that in an integral way? And I think that's like one of the most pressing questions that that is arising for me right now is, as I'm watching all of this unfold. Yeah, totally. And it reminds me of, I think Zach Stein coined the term like the meta crisis where we're mm-hmm. having all of these crises at once, right? There's the meaning crisis that someone like John Verveke has talked about and analyzed. There's the ecological crisis. We're now in the middle of an economic crisis amidst a whole mm-hmm. health crisis. And all of these crises are just happening all together, which really is a perfect environment. It's, the environment is so ripe for some kind of holistic, multifaceted, integrally informed solution where all of these things can kind of uh, be tackled at once and I think that in, in terms of the whole dismissing of the green and the first tier and that kind of thing which is kind of funny too given how when you really think about the power dynamics and how different worldviews have the power in society it's pretty I think it's demonstrable that the orange modernist rational consciousness has most of the power and so going you know according to developmental theory, moving the center of gravity, so to speak, from orange to green is a huge first step in order to get to a truly second-tier society 
whatever that looks like, whether it's more of a decentralized local initiatives like Game B is promoting, or even uh, political movements that Hanzi is promoting in metamodernism. Uh, but we need to have we need to be realistic about what we need on the ground. And, and to me, for me, my my kind of bias or or slant is is very much geared towards class dynamics and this kind of John Rawlsian difference principle and veil of ignorance thought experiment that society should be designed to help people who are at the worst possible place, right? To help people who are at the bottom of the pit because that person could have been you. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of where my heart goes to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think this is definitely, and maybe we can explore this together as well. Like um, what growing down means for us in the context of being an integral podcast uh, you, you sort of ryan you kind of hit the nail on the head there with in terms of you know it's not actually about the head it's bringing it into the heart so there's like a kind of a coming down into into the immediacy of of you know the suffering of people you know and, and creating yeah. a society that that tries to uh lessen that and mitigate that as, as much as possible but maybe we can kind of go around there and um the three of us sort of lean into this a little bit too like what does growing down mean for us in an integral context do you have any thoughts on that matt yeah i do uh why don't you take it for a little bit here i got one minute i got something i gotta take care of and then i'll get right back to it sure sure um ryan do you want do you want to lean into that yeah I, i think there are a lot of implications depending on what sphere of life we're talking about right i mean there are psychological implications to growing down and 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 embodying and instantiating that highly abstract or complex consciousness and and really embodying it on on a somatic on an immediate phenomenological level this is kind of where we get into a gebsarian or uh, Mm -hmm. hillman-esque critique i think on a societal level to me, it's really all about how do we take all of these fantastic and sexy and exciting ideas and really instantiate them into our institutional infrastructure, right? Into our all of our exchanges and interactions um, in life and, and really make it as practical as possible. <laughs> and, um, and I think you, you really talked about this a lot too, Jeremy, which I appreciate, right? Focusing on material reality and really focusing on how much our material reality really shapes and conditions our consciousness, our perception, our subjectivity. How much has the lower right quadrant colonized our subjectivity? How much has technology mm-hmm. done that? Right? And I think, as we were talking about before, a lot of these new technologies that the internet is providing in a kind of more of a McLuhan analysis where we have things like memes and GIFs and images are coming. There's a lot of people watching YouTube and all the time and, and electronic media. And there is kind of a, a resuscitation of the magical structure, right? Of, of the all, at, you know, uh, McLuhan talks about the all at once-ness that, that the internet and all of the sounds and the sights are thrown at you at once in a kind of sensorial bombardment that you're ensconced in. And so I think that we are seeing a reactivation of the magical and the mythical structures. But the danger is that these technologies bring those forgotten structures back online and we're not conscious of how to deal with them. We're not conscious Mm -hmm. in integrating them. We're not conscious in embodying them. And so Mm -hmm. if we don't bring that consciousness to that, then the technology will basically unconsciously keep on activating these 
<laughs> the, these worlds yeah. in us and it'll just be chaos. We have no idea what they are, what's happening or how to deal with it. So to understand the relationship between technology and the lower red quadrant structures and how they're changing and influencing our consciousness, I think is, is a huge part of me, uh, part of my inspiration, the growing down uh, angle. Agreed there. Agreed there for, for sure. Um, uh, f- for me, it's, it's um, growing down, first of all, is an agreement with your first point about in the Gebserian sense that all of the well, first of all, as like a, a, a teaser for folks, Gebser didn't really have a developmentalist schematic, first of all. Um, and you, you have to look up more of my writing and, and talks if you want to dive into that. But um, the structures of consciousness, the archaic, magic, mythic, mental, even the integral, are all um, grounded in phenomenology and perception, right? It's it's how do we embody ourselves in the world? What are the ways in which we organize our senses and our perception? And that we have we have these multiple or manifold ways that we do that. You talked about the magic as one, the sort of all at oneness and acoustic auditory quality. The mental structure of consciousness, which I think most of us it's kind of the the, the the ground or, or the, the the ecology in which we're swimming like the sensor sensory ecology in which we base so much of our of our operation in um, that's going through a kind of a breakdown and a transformation and so for Gebser you know the question is really can can we become familiar with the archaic magic mythic and mental and a very grounded embodied, um, perceptual way and by doing that liberate ourselves from overemphasizing one or one or the other over another right and the mental right now is overemphasized um, but it's not very well integrated with the magic or the mythic so just like you're saying in society we see we see that playing out in real time um, I'll just give like a very millennial example but uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny and ironic it's called being ratioed have you heard of this on no. Twitter? No. Okay. So being ratioed on Twitter is a meme, but it's also when you make a Twitter post and you have more comments than you have retweets or likes. And getting ratioed means you basically posted something that pissed a lot of people off. Right, right. <laughs> um, and it seemed like, oh man, this guy just like just got ratioed. This is embarrassing for him. Uh, so it's like it, it's a it's it's kind of a it's sort of a joke, but I think it's so well like sums up some of these behaviors of the magical um, in the, in the deficient sense where everyone kind of piles in a singular way onto somebody to like attack them and deconstruct them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and and you know cancel culture is a part of this, um, but it's a sort of a phenomenon of the internet, and we're not really I don't I don't think we're well equipped or well aware to understand these kinds of behaviors that the internet engenders and retrieves in terms of the magical structure. Uh, so that's just like one example. That's like a, you know, a millennial example getting ratioed ironically. Um, so like, yeah, I think, I think my first point for growing down is to be aware of how the structures of consciousness are playing out in everyday life and in our senses. But my second point, which is another Gibsarian point, um, but also, I think a Latour point, a Bruno Latour point. Um, he's he's a social philosopher, anthropologist, uh, French thinker. Really, highly recommend his his work. But um, he talks about Latour specifically talks about the politics of the terrestrial, and he frames our moment right now as a 
a, a collapse of the mentality that produced modernity. And this mentality ha having a particular trajectory, right? An ideal of infinite material gains, infinite material growth, uh, an ideal of globalization in which everything is managed by this free market economy that is capitalistic. Um, that he thinks is, is imploding. That is, it's a bubble that has burst like in the stock market um, because it was based on, on something that was abstract, idealistic, and not grounded in living systems, whether they're living human systems or living ecological systems. It's not compatible with the earth on the ground, with a terrestrial. So he has this comparison, like we're moving away from this global trajectory of modernity and moving down into the terrestrial where living systems are going to have a tremendous role in, in how we enact our politics and our economics. And I really like that kind of simplification that he, he gives for us. But that's very similar to what Gebser says in terms of the mental structure of consciousness. Um, that's what helped kind of produce this world in, in which we kind of, we don't really live on the earth. We kind of live floating above it in a kind of an abstract sense. And what we impress upon the earth by doing it, doing that and living that way creates a lot of this fallback. There's all of these ambiguities of modernity, these unforeseen consequences. So for Gebser, a lot of what is happening today in terms of growing down, similar to what Latour is saying, is that the mental has been so overemphasized that it we really need to kind of come back down to earth. We really need to get out of our heads, so to speak, and into living processes and into living systems. Um, and that's part of what the shift to integral is. It's it's a, a de-emphasis on abstraction and a re-emphasis on concretion. When he calls it concretion, just means you know tangible reality, right? Physical space, um, presence as a reorientation in terms of the individual. So I those to me are like some of the most important things. But then to relay it to my final point, the third point for growing down is uh, one of the things you mentioned, Ryan, that that essentially the lower left and the lower right um, are always in communication, of course, the upper left too, and upper right, but they're always in communication with one another, right? Like understanding how much the lower right has, has an impact, economic ideology has an impact on culture and the individual is something that progressive literature has looked at, right? Like progressive literature is very interested in the lower left and the lower right, and it has been since Marx. So there's this kind of overcoming of our biases about reading things like, you know, a Marxist critique of, of capitalism and like getting more comfortable with looking at some of these more progressive, um, uh, critical theories about society and actually learning what they're actually saying. Um, so that's part of the growing down for me too, in terms of this political project. Yeah, I got a couple of responses to that, Jeremy. Uh, my first thing, sort of when thinking about growing down and, and the things you guys brought up was, um, and hopefully we could have Macintosh on here to explain his book about developmental politics. One of my big critiques of politics is the spectrum only going from left and right, and, and they're not being a vertical development. So there's not... Um, a top and a bottom. And I really do think we're in an age right now where the progressive green is starting to split. You see that specifically with Biden Democrats and you also with Bernie Democrats. And I, I really do think there's a new level, whether it's emerged or not, or whether Bernie's teal, um, the debate's not really not worth sort of my fight, but I do think there is a split going on. 
in which something new is starting to emerge. And um, so that that's the idea Macintosh talks about, which is develop, developmental politics. And that um, it, the integral idea is that these worldviews are, are good. All of them are good. They're all partial but true. And, and not to just throw out a Republican's idea because it's a Republican, I think it's, or a Democrat idea because it's a, right? We're looking at the hyper-polarization of what's going on in America. It's widening. And the reason why is that they're unable to have a conversation, a dialogue, and an honest deliberation about what should be done. So I think that goes along with developmental politics. And the other thing that Hansi brings up that I think is important right now with our postmodern age is to bring the interiors back online. So to not have a flatland view of the world. And I want to just quote two things by Hansi in his Nordic ideology book about existential politics. The first one, existential politics is the practice of making the foundational existential relationship that all of us have to reality itself into a political question, into an issue that can be openly discussed so that measures can be taken to develop it, to develop the subjective states of human experience to clear the depths of the human soul. And the second one, to base a political ideology or program or an entirely rational or secular foundation is and remains a fool's errand. Pure rationality can can never answer what politics ultimately should be about, only how we're most likely to achieve what we set out to do. And something that kind of tails on that is his idea of fellowship politics, which I think we're going to really see with this crisis going on. One of the things that emerged from the Great Depression, despite all the suffering that did happen, was a better sense of community. People had to connect with each other because there was real-life situations going on. And I think one of the things that hopefully can emerge from this crisis that's going on is that our community will become stronger and we will transcend identity politics. Mm. Mm. Great points there. Um yeah, I think um, that the, the whole idea of a rational secular left, a strictly rational secular left, also has to be addressed. Um, and I think it ha- unfortunately exacerbates the the escape valve into more, quote-unquote, conservative outlets like the intellectual dark web. Um, Michael Brooks talks a lot about this, that we need a spirituality for the left, that you know, the meaning crisis can only be addressed by uh, conservative outlooks in terms of, you know, growing down, et cetera, and the things that we talk about, like the soul of a nation or the soul of a people. Biden's talking about the soul of the nation. So so that the conversation has to be had. And I don't think it's it's too difficult because in terms of in terms of progressive literature, in terms of Marx, in terms of, you know, a more capitalist critique of society, even though those are primarily looking at economics and economic ideology, they're doing so as a kind of um, guard or, or 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 leaving the door open for a more meaningful life, right? Because the whole point of this, of, of a critique of capitalism, is um, not only the alienation of the worker from their labor, but the alienation of the worker from from their own soul right the quantification of the individual is a dehumanizing act so a lot of the critiques tend to be secular yes a lot of the culture on the left tends to be secular yes and even kind of vehemently aggressively um uh, critical of a more spiritual politics i think i think there is a tradition on the left that nevertheless has continued to persist 
And if we go back to the 1860s and the abolition movement, uh, you know, there there is an example there. If we move to the 1960s to the spiritual countercultures, you know, there's there's a overlap there. So I think the potential for an existential politics, like you're saying, is is also very important. And maybe this is, and I like your emphasis on this, Matt. Like maybe this is another aspect of what interval can bring to this um, as a kind of a translative function, right? Like addressing the spiritual question as we're also leaning onto the the material concerns. Yeah, really, really well said, uh, Jeremy. And something that I was thinking about was how, yeah, you're right, like Marx, we, we tend to stereotype Marx as being a solely lower right quadrant type of analysis, but he talked about how the proletariat is like selling their species essence, right? The essence of who you are is kind of being commodified and uh, abstracted in a very dehumanizing way when it comes to labor and capital relations. And yeah, you're literally selling your soul in kind of in the form of wage slavery, which is why I'm such a huge proponent of UBI. Mm-hmm. But I think when it comes to the spiritual, one of the spiritual rifts that we're seeing with the left, uh, especially with the left and the right, right? As you're saying, as Michael Brooks says, we can't just let the Jordan Petersons of the world <laughs> Or, or the mainstream Christian uh, Republican Party hijack narratives on values, meaning, moral capital, as Jonathan Haidt says. And the left needs to be able to reintegrate that narrative and to concurrently um, promote that narrative along with material and institutional and political hard, hard economic reforms. And one of the splits I see on the left, which drives me crazy, is the rift between the kind of 60s counterculture, cultural, social justice, identity politics oriented left and the lower right quadrant oriented Bernie Sanders working class uh, left. And there's there's this tension there. And I was talking to a woman the other day who is very deep in the social justice world in Portland about how a lot of her progressive or, or her um, friends in the social justice circles, they they hate the white progressives or, or the Bernie Sanders crowd for several reasons. Um, one is that they, they don't address racial or um, identity issues enough. And also that uh, concerns that may have to do with race, mm-hmm. uh, for, for example, or gender or whatever, are nested in class issues as a kind of class reductionism. So it's not totally satisfying for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that to me, marrying that split will go a long way towards how the left can also start to reintegrate spiritual narratives too. Because in my experience, the people who are more the Marxist left tend to be more atheistic and a little bit more mm-hmm. like hard, hard material realities their focus and understandably so. But I have noticed a, a, a hunger in the social justice crowd for mindfulness and, and spirituality. You know, my aunt is a, a teacher of Buddhism and uh, mindfulness and social justice in Oakland, California. And there really is a desire to integrate um, spiritual concerns and desire for personal growth and desire to grapple with existential challenges, especially when it comes to identity and uh, issues of oppression and so forth, and how that can be a very empowering and liberating thing for a lot of these marginalized populations. And so that's kind of another one of my like hidden agendas is yeah. to tr- or acupuncture points I want to hit is to try to bring the spirituality in a more explicit form, in a more direct form to the social justice left so they have a robust interior life and 
and it's not only this focus on on like changing other people's minds or that kind of thing, right? There's a there's an inner tra- uh, transformative component that dovetails along with social activism and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Well said. Um, I think yeah, I think there are a lot of acupuncture points yeah. we're all alluding to here. Uh, sorry, Matt. Yeah, I was just saying what I think what the integral theory brings to this is a map, and I th- and the map will act. I think Stein talks about this, and and when things get too complex, the map will simplify sort of to make sense of kind of what's going on. And I think with integral theory, with some of Hanzi's metamodern political ideas, what you have is a healthy map. And I think it's the best map we have. And and it makes sense of everything that's going on. So you can interpret these crises and be able to answer these questions so people know what to do and they're not left sort of, well, what what, what happens next? And so I I think uh, the important thing is kind of moving forward is to, to navigate this terrain is referencing our map, using the ideas out there to make sense. Because I think right now what you're having is a, a high level of incoherence. For example, when they say, you know, well, how are you going to pay for Medicare for all? You know, the crisis happens, the stock, stock market crashes, and then they introduce $1.5 trillion into the bond market. That's, an, that's a way of our government can make this happen if they want it to happen. The people in power don't want it to happen. And it's up for the people, the populists on the left, on the right, to come together and say, no, it's our time. This isn't just for the 1%. This isn't just for the rich. Um, and, and let's do this. Let's make this happen. Let's let's get a good safety net so we can reduce the amount of suffering that's happening on this earth. Mm-hmm. Well said. I, I think that's another... another uh, synthesis or union that we're looking at here too between the left populists and the right populists uh this is something that i think uh the hill rising talks quite a bit about and how maybe the future of populism in the united states needs to be some kind of coalition right of of workers both conservative and progressive because at, at the moment there's a lot of atomization of different value spheres, different forms of identity, and then, of course, between like working class or, or progressive uh, class-oriented thinkers and communities, and then identity-oriented progressives. And this can be very dangerous to, to, to navigate because they are constantly, you know, rubbing each other the wrong way. And really, like, we need to overcome a lot of these divisions before we can kind of band together and address these larger social problems, or maybe not before, but as we're doing that, we really need to come together, maybe simultaneously. And um, you know, this is this is one of those questions of about how does society evolve, because we have to consider, and this is something that a lot of um, progressive media outlets always talk about: the the separation of class from identity is an, is a is a weaponization through neoliberalism, right? Like the the ability to divide and conquer, to preserve certain economic policies that are intrinsically divisive and against the interests of the working class are kept in place as certain progressive values that are more identity oriented are are put forward. And part of that process. So so we really have to for instance, if if somebody is um uh, you know, a, a person of color, but they're running for office, but they have deeply neoliberal and, and uh, kind of violent economic ideologies, right, that are really inequitable. Uh, they might be able to get that passed. They might be able to be voted into office, and it might be seen in some sense as a progressive achievement. But 
when it comes to economics, that's that's what's missing here. So I think you know, just maybe in the historical situation uh, in, in the world right now, um, we've sort of lost consciousness of class and economics, and we're trying to figure out a way to bring that back into the story and back into the synthesis, so to speak. Um, and I don't know, maybe this is one of those pressure points that that integral and metamodernism can address in a way that is coherent and helpful, hopefully. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, Matt, did you have to uh, get going or did you want to say anything before you go? Yeah, I mean, just kind of tailing on the end there of what um, Jeremy was saying, I think with race, I think it's possible we're in an age where it's a transcend and include sort of issue in the sense that, yes, it's important, but there might and I think the politi uh, political postmodernism brought that in. It's important. And now we're at a time, and I, I'm not saying you, you get rid of it. It's there. But you also have to identify, I think right now the most important thing, most important issue going on is economic inequality and addressing that divide. And mm -hmm. there's, there's a whole new, there's, there could be a whole other podcast on that issue alone. But I think that right now, and I think this crisis is going to either further illustrate how it's not a fair system and it's important for integral politics metamodern politics to to lower that divide and make it fair make a system that's coherent that makes sense because right now it's an incoherent system and thank you guys i appreciate this podcast definitely awesome awesome totally. well thank you both uh maybe we'll see you next week as as uh things progress i think we're all going to have a lot more time to uh sit around and have conversations yeah jeremy did you want to go for a few more minutes sure 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 um okay thank you matt yeah thanks matt have a good one take care Matt. yeah yeah i mean there, there's so much i i just need i have so many thoughts on that <laughs> topic but to, to me, what really comes up, and I was thinking about this the other day, of how like people, politicians like Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, and Pete Buttigieg, a lot of the progressive media outlets like Kyle Quincy just ripped them incessantly, you know, mercilessly for just spewing cliches and platitudes, right? And and doing and just being all about talk and not about actual hard policy changes, such as what someone like Bernie is promoting. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about how there's an entire class of voters out there, and I call them value voters. In a more derogatory sense, I like to think of them as like luxury voters, where things are going pretty well for them. So I think they consciously or unconsciously want to maintain the status quo. So what mm -hmm. a lot of politicians like Biden go for are talking about values so that they don't have to make any structural changes to the system, right? This is why I'm mm -hmm. fighting to reclaim the soul of America. And then on another another kind of cynical critique, you have other people um, who are weaponizing identity politics, you know, the unhealthy capitalist orange power structures using identity politics, you know, inspired dynamics would be like uh, unhealthy orange virtue signaling is green as mm -hmm. a way to try to win over social justice, the social justice branch of the left, or at least a virtue signal to the activist crowd and not pass any policies or have any substantive you know advocating substantive changes that changes that would really actually help people of color or marginalized communities or minorities or whatever and so for me the question is how does someone talk about values or identity or like you're saying soul right this kind of 
uh, resuscitation of the mythic again. That actually, I do think, I'm not downplaying that because I do think a lot of mm-hmm. people really hunger for that conversation to re-enter into politics. But how do we do that in a healthy way that's not just an excuse to perpetuate a neoliberal agenda, right? Like how do we genuinely engage the spiritual and moral yearnings of the populace without it being just a way to cover up the fact that you're not going to make any real changes? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's not it's not as complicated as, as it might sound at the surface. I, I really just think in, in terms of when it's brought up that the narrative includes the economics, that the narrative includes class consciousness, right? Like to say, okay, to address the soul of a nation, we have to address the soul of, of labor. We have to address the soul of the disenfranchised. It, it just has to be applied a little bit further. You know, I think, I think um, identity politics have been, you know, to some degree, I'm not saying it's all nefarious in terms of the way uh, it, it's typically presented in, in uh, more centrist uh, political language, because, you know, of course, it's, it's good that, it, you know, race and, and gender being brought up in a way that they haven't before in, in sort of the last period of uh, um, the historical left where class used to be a little bit more uh, prevalent. Uh, that sort of faded away. And then we began to have a little bit more of uh, different identity movements happening. Um, but I, I think they've just become divorced. And it really is a matter of well, how do we narrativize these economic concerns and see them as concerns of insolment, right? In terms of treating people better, in terms of creating a more equitable society and the soul of that, the spirit of that. They used to be not so divided. You know, I think we've just sort of drifted into different forms of rhetoric and different forms of narrative that aren't taking the economic and the class concerns into their languaging, right? So I don't know. I mean, just simply stating, you know, this, how do we address the soul of America? Bernie, Bernie, for instance, could flip that around, you know, like mm. we do need to restore the soul of America, but the soul of America is in, you know, people going bankrupt because they get sick. You know, this is, this is a soulless approach. This is a soulless system. This is a de-souling uh, uh, health crisis in our country. Like he can own that, you know, he can really take some of these more, um, uh, uh, value oriented forms of rhetoric and apply them to economics in a way that I think would resonate with people right now. I think there's a unique opportunity right now to kind of reintroduce those two things and bring them together. So yeah, I, I think it's a more, more of a matter of practicing it, right. And creatively applying it to our rhetoric in terms of these questions. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't know what the easy answer is because so much of the rhetoric has become so divided and bifurcated where it is like only about one particular issue over another. Uh, Like, like whether or not you agree with what Michael Brooks has said about like Elizabeth Warren's campaign, one of his critiques has been in the fallout of that campaign. um, A lot of, of, of progressive oriented folks, including some of her staffers have moved on to the Bernie campaign support and solidarity kind of going, look, yes, the, the gender and misogyny and um, a pro kind of feminist leadership is, is something that was a problem during Elizabeth Warren's campaign. She was, you know, a lot of this might be due to gender issues in our society, her, her success or not, not being successful, but 
we still need to have solidarity with the with this progressive movement and build a coalition. So there's these sense there's a sense of like really needing to bring these things together, you know, and not kind of collapsing into single identitarian issues when there's something larger at stake than just that, you know. So yeah, man, I I think it's it's a difficult um uh, challenging thing, but also it's very straightforward in terms of we need to get better at linking those two together in our rhetoric, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Really, really well said. Um, so I, I have something to say that I want to ask your question. So I totally agree about how Bernie Sanders, for example, could integrate the soul, soulful narrative back into talking about economic and class issues. Right. And something that you learn in debate is how the best debaters argue for your positions while hijacking your opponent's values. Mm-hmm. So I can just see Bernie going up on the debate stage being like, the way to restore the soul of America is to give everyone health care. <laughs> raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. Look, <laughs> right? And, and so you, you can, he can take that narrative of Biden and, and flip it around and use it to infuse all of his hard material policies with this morally uplifting, soulful message. And even on the left, too, with the social justice left i mean martin luther king man that guy is like the epitome of soul right yeah yeah, (laughs) and and there is this deeply soulful tradition that you alluded to both in terms of the class-based left the identity-based left um you know liberation and and implications of like liberation theology and so forth so so my question is other than the pragmatic function of politicians using the narrative of soul in a healthy way to provide a little bit more juice and meaning to people's lives and also to maybe win voters or even win voters from the right. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe from a Gebserian uh, perspective, like what would be the spiritual significance if this narrative was like reintegrated? Like how would that be spiritually beneficial, do you think, for the American people? Mm-hmm. Um, are you making a distinction between soul and spirit here? Not really. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Should there be one? <laughs> I well, I mean, uh, technically maybe, but but I think not in not in this context. Like what we're saying, and mm-hmm. what I think I hear you saying is, you know, how would this benefit the American people in terms of uniting, um, you know, class solidarity, uh, workers' rights and equity, healthcare equity, with more spiritual and soulful principal concerns? Um, you know, I, I I just think it would be. A, a signaling a move towards a less mental rational society right like mm. signaling a move or acknowledging the need to get beyond an underlying economic ideology that is like fundamentally dehumanizing and quantifying it's no longer healthy um i think it would for me anyway it's the foot in the door for a more for, for a prefigurative society that doesn't exist yet maybe but is spiritually more democratic, um, more egalitarian, perhaps finding ways for that to economically exist too. So, you know, in many ways, I think that would be leaving some space for the future to kind of take root, you know, for, for that better society to begin to take root. I think the very first step we could take would be to spiritually affirm the need for it as a society and then begin to implement policies that that curb against some of the extreme forms of capitalism and some of the extreme forms of wealth inequality it's a really basic concern i mean and this is the other thing that i think we have to keep in mind here 
there's a, a kind of a historical restoration that this would have that this would be a part of in terms of um the kinds of policies that americans used to um before in terms of taxing the the ultra wealthy uh there used to be a lot more stringent factors in the 20th century there was fdr's unfinished you know um he had those other i forget what they were called exactly but uh the 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 after the the essential like rights we have as people should be you know we, ha- we should have the right to healthcare right so so these kind of unfinished works in the american project you know i think in terms of even like a healthy mythological image would be very restorative for us and that's another form of soul right but then in terms of the future and anticipating a post capitalist society well i mean we have to at least do this right we have to at least kind of have some some limits on unbridled, you know, growth at the top of society. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's just sort of saying enough is enough. We need to we need to be open to something else, some some other possibility. Um, and I think that's in, intrinsically spiritual, right? Like moving beyond the mental, rational, rational, spatialized consciousness. The integral is supposed to be the sort of diaphanous non-linear you know um open expanse of, of transparency between subject and object uh, nature and culture and then we we could even say you know the, the the upper echelons of society and the lower these kind of distancings are are what needs to be spiritually overcome um and i don't think our economic ideology and our society is structured in a way that reflects the integral um so I don't know. It's not really a clear answer for me, but but at the very least, I think to to implement some of what Bernie is asking for leaves room for new possibilities. Right. Yeah. What What do you think? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's that had me so fascinated and also perplexed was when Jordan Peterson became popular. Like, I just could mm-hmm. not comprehend why there was so much demand for him you know like i I would i would watch his stuff and be like okay like i you know i I studied jungian psychology and pretty hardcore when i was a teenager so i was like okay you know this is cool that people are getting into this i just don't see what the big deal is (laughs) but apparently like i have so many friends where like they are just yearning for that soulful meaningful 21st century logo therapy kind of thing that he provides and in, in his very kind of stern, stoic, fatherly figure, masculine kind of way. And I'm just like, man, like how much hunger there is for that kind of, for that kind of uh, infusion of soul into people's lives, right? Probably yeah. with having to do with the meaning crisis and feeling alienated and anomie and that kind of thing, right? So I think that the, one of the, one of the real benefits of, um, reintegrating the soul narrative is growing down, right? Growing down and reclaiming our mythic roots. And as you said, right, kind of going away from this neurotic abstraction that's come to characterize the deficient mental that we were embedded in and regrounding that into something more felt, more tangible, uh, and on a kind of like a level that satisfies our gut level morality, right? And that that yearning for, like, uh, I love uh, Alistair McIntyre, the philosopher who wrote a book called After Virtue, and he talks in the he opens the book by saying that we've lost the proper language to even talk about virtue, values, character, and moral issues. And and that's why I so appreciate John Verveke for really 
bringing that narrative back online, and in my opinion, <laughs> uh, fulfilling that hunger in a slightly more sophisticated and healthier way than Jordan Peterson's kind of hyper-politicized anti-postmodern Marxist leftist narrative. Uh, I mean, I'm not totally knocking Peterson, um, but I, I do think that reintegrating that would go a long way towards um, getting away from the deficient mental and and really having uh, the, that that would satisfy the spiritual part of growing down. I think. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I agree. I like I like Verveke. I think he's um he he brings a lot to the table. I've, I've listened to a couple of his lectures. Um, and and I think in many ways he's his min, meaning crisis is another way of describing an integral the the and Gepsarian's integral the the move or overemphasis. I like how you put it. The neurotic fixation on abstraction um and the capacity for the mental to kind of make this abstract cut to divide the the part from the whole and to really kind of study and measure the part but then mistakenly confuse the part for the whole in a totality right that that, there's all these processes that are taking place in the mental that have like really severed us from our ability to access our roots Mm -hmm. to access the the magical numinosity and the mythical soul and kind of understand how, understand better how like soul still plays a part in society. Like Hillman and Jung, I get, I get why people are so turned on, especially by Peterson's um, emphasis in, in Jung, right, and depth mm-hmm. psychology and the archetypes. It's like um, the, the the soul continues to play a role in society, very often in unhealthy ways. But to give one example of like um, uh, from Gebser talking about the soul and its role today. Um, he talks about the debates between the idealists and the materialists and every few centuries or so, like one will take take the, um, the one will become dominant in academia over the other, but they keep kind of just oscillating back and forth. Um, and he says, you know, this, this polarity, this duality that we keep switching back and forth on is really um, in some sense, a kind of a, a pathologized expression of the neglected soul, which in the mythical structure for Gepser, it was this sort of dance of polarities of like complementary opposites, um, light mm-hmm. and dark, you know, the, the heaven and the underworld with like the human world in the middle. But there's all these kind of like polarities that make sense in a non-rational or irrational way. And to lose access to those forms of being human uh, you know, we, we we lose access to a part of ourselves, right? So the drive to re- restore that, I think, can be very powerful. And when somebody like Peterson, who's a directly looking at that again, uh, in, a, in a late stage capitalist society where meaning has so atrophied, um, yeah, like I can totally get the, 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 the kind of fervor and hagiographic quality that people attribute to peterson you know like he's he's seen as this kind of saint this kind of figure this kind of um prophet so yeah i think i think that's part of the thing that we we have to translate here which is like okay the magic and the mythic are are realities that we need to get back into contact with and long story long way of of saying that um i like what verveke is doing because he's kind of addressing this in his own way and offering people different tools to reaccess these these capacities um, that are may, maybe in a, a little bit more of a palatable 
modern way um, as kind of, you know, neurocognitive capacities. And he has that angle on it too. But nevertheless, I think it's just a way for people to, to, to give themselves permission to reaccess those things. And I would rather take a, I would rather have a Verveke over a Peterson, to be honest. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just a couple thoughts. Um, it's interesting how I think some people are accurate in saying this, that the Republican party traditionally, or at least for the last 40 years has had a monopoly on the narrative of soul and value and morality through Christianity. But Donald Trump is like the most soulless guy I could ever think of. I mean, that guy is just a, like Sam Harris was talking about how he just has this like kind of inhuman hollowness to him. And it's like someone who's been so hollowed out from greed and corruption and the worst of all of the vices of American culture, right? This kind of entertainment, uh, narcissistic reality TV star buffoonery. And how if the conservatives elected that guy, right? I mean, not like he was running against the best crowd, but there's a crisis of soul on, on every level, right? And oh, yeah. and especially since that's supposed to be their thing, the moral capital, right? Why the heck do all these poor people in rural Kansas vote against their own interests? Well, they're voting for their moral capital, but Trump is mm -hmm. supposed to hold the moral capital? Bullshit, mm -hmm. right? So I think, I think that there is this crisis, moral crisis, a meaning crisis in, in the political sphere. Uh, and also, I do think that connecting that forgotten mythic realm as a way to ground our roots away from the uh, neurotic abstraction that's occurred will be highly, uh, the, the implications of that on a systemic level, I think, will be huge. And, and two examples that come to my mind are the uh, financial collapse of 2008 with the subprime mortgage crisis and how derivatives, as Warren Buffett called, are weapons of mass destruction because derivatives are so far abstracted to the underlying asset, uh, the value that's supposed, or that's supposed to be held by these mm -hmm. highly abstracted concepts that have been abstracted so many times from the original thing that people lost track of the, the trail. And that's what causes economic collapses. You know, when you look at the ecological crisis, we have all of this carbon floating out in the, the atmosphere that's not being sequestered into the ground, right? So it's mm -hmm. like the, the mental, the, the byproducts, the shadow, the uh, negative externalities of modernity and industrialization have created this dissociated body of carbon floating around that needs to be <laughs> sequestered and, and grounded again. And I, I do think that, that that metaphor permeates to a whole bunch of different uh, no man, that's brilliant. That, that's a great uh, just the whole idea of like the carbon sink, right? And another like a very kind of rooted uh, metaphor of coming down to earth is just uh, so perfect. That just like captures everything, you know. <laughs> As you're describing it, it's like all of the different associations were just firing off, like oh, ecological, economic, mental, rational, cultural evolution, all of it, you know. And it's so perfect. It's such a perfect metaphor that just that loose. Um, it's just sort of floating up in the atmosphere, <laughs> uh, literally just head in the clouds, right? Right, it's, right. It's that failure to come down to earth. It's the disconnect of the head from the rest of the body of the planet. And uh, what I want to emphasize is um, growing down isn't anti-evolutionary or anti-emergence. This is not the more nonlinear sense of, of what this actually means in terms of emergence is um it's the integral capacity. It's this integrality which is coming online, which is allowing uh, a kind of a reintegration of what has been broken off. And you know, the, the magic and the mythic alone aren't 
what we're talking about here. We're not going to overemphasize the magic or the mythic now or the soul. It's like, it's the integral which is helping to restructuralize all of these different dimensions and capacities and bring them back or restore them back into, I don't want to exactly say balance, but certainly um, to deflate whatever's overemphasized. Um, and in terms of like Trump, uh, you know, I, I think there's another element of him that is like in a pathological sense, very soul oriented. Mm -hmm. you know, we talk about m myth and magic as being kind of more embodied structures of consciousness and the mental being sort of like a head structure of consciousness. Um, that also means the psychistic and the emotional and the soulful layers of uh, dimensions of being human are what has been kind of severed and cut off. So when they erupt in an, in a kind of exaggerated sense, it's a cry for integration. It's, it's a cry of pathology, right? So even with Trump, we have, we had a populist rage, right? We had this, this overinflation of him, like this coronation of him by his voters as this kind of like demigod, right? Like right. he's this sort of um, like the Jim Baker show, uh, which is this kind of, I don't know if you've seen it uh, on memes and stuff. He's the guy who sells those buckets <laughs> for the apocalypse. Um, but but he he basically coronated Trump as this sort of biblical figure. And he's like, well, you know, he's he's sinned, but he's like he's kind of like a biblical figure in that sense. He's sort of like the, the, the God's instrument. But, you know, he's sinful himself and that's OK. So there's this there's all there's, there is a kind of a psychistic emotional inflation that's happening. Gepser talks about this in terms of like um the integral has more to do with temporics and different ways we embody time and space um and in the early 20th century we had this kind of break away from renaissance art and modernity and this sort of flight back into the irrational and the unconscious and he called it um not only a, a, an eruption of what the mental had been suppressing but also an inflation he called it temporal time inflation. So I think we can think of it this way too, with Trump and a lot of these kind of exaggerated flights back to the soul and, and the spirit in an unhealthy way as these kinds of inflations of what we've kind of disconnected from. So they, they come back in unhealthy ways. They come back in ways that sort of overtake us uh, for a period. Uh, so so I, think, I think that's another way to kind of think of the, the weird conservative coronation of this very non non principled guy who who does appear very soulless, but he he was kind of this um, vacuum to just pour just unbridled rage and frustration into into this kind of archetypal figure of revenge, you know. And that's that's a profoundly soul oriented pathos there. It's deeply charged emotionally. Um, so yeah, that was just my thoughts on on. <laughs> on <laughs> god king trump you know <laughs> yeah man that was intense um <laughs> but no really really well said i mean th those are some really haunting visuals you seared into my mind but yeah he was he was the container for this populist rage that has been brewing and percolating under the surface for god knows how long at least since the obama years and i know i i live in gresham which is the town right east of portland and so it's much more conservative than portland and I, I go to the gym and I go to the sauna all the time and guys in there are deeply conservative, you know, older guys. And they're constantly comparing Trump to Jesus Christ. And, and they were talking, they were comparing the, uh, uh, the um, impeachment of Trump as, as like, you know, some Christ event of like the crucifixion and all this kind of thing. And um, 
whether or not you know Trump really is like the shadow of of soul. I mean, I think I think he is, as you said, right? And, and there is this collective longing for a figure like that, and they will project that onto whoever can remotely come close to that, even if it's completely, even if everything that he's about is completely antithetical to uh, you know evangelical uh, values or or whatever. But I think that it all go, just connected what we were talking about earlier, the, the tangible effect of healthily and consciously reintegrating the soul narrative, it will militate against the perverse, distorted, warped manifestations of it that, that mm-hmm. have cropped mm-hmm. up spontaneously via Trump. And I think there is a kind of, we, you know, to, to keep the soul uh, lens going here, I think we can think about the populist versus elitist framework that, you know, the Hill talks about. This is your populist guide to 2020, right? Whether you're a left-wing populist like Crystal or more on the right like Sagar, uh, there is a soulful component of the people feeling deeply condescended on and deeply humiliated and left behind by the elites. And whether they're cultural elites or whether they're uh, the political elites, you know, epitomized by like Hillary Clinton or Obama or, or other cultural elites that have gone in a very liberal direction like Hollywood or even the mainstream media. And there is this, I think a lot of the, the populist anger on the right is also a soul issue in that they don't feel acknowledged, they feel left behind by the progressives, and they feel looked down upon um, as just the, you know, redneck, you know, white trash, whatever, hoi polloi. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and there is a loss of soul there too. And it erupted in a, in a, with pathological fervor in the 2016 election. Yeah, I don't think that can be overemphasized enough that you know, as, a, as another integral analysis or assessment of, of even this election cycle, um, elevating a centrist who is going to continue to talk mm-hmm. down to the working class is, is just not the integral answer. Even if you believe his kind of middle way could get more things done practically in, in Congress or the Senate, um, you know, we can't, underplay the emotional pathos that is driving Trump supporters and mm-hmm. that will drive we, we we've yet to see this play out but you know uh, the Bernie supporters who feel deeply disenfranchised and alienated and humiliated by their party which has so aggressively worked to to combat condescend uh, their their values and their principles and what they're asking for in terms of um, you know the, the basic, uh, candidacy of, of Bernie Sanders and what he, what he's saying he wants to pass in Congress, universal health care, et cetera. So, so I think if anything, you know, depending on how this election turns out, that pathos is going to be here more than ever. And, and with this economic downturn, right, which is not really, I know they just passed the bill in the Senate today. Um, Pelosi was talking about that on the news today. But, but if you look at it, it it's only addressing, let's say, like, I think about 20% of workers and sort of, uh, in terms of compensation, um, this is, you know, th- this is only going to get worse. The, the pathology is o- only going to become more deeply rooted in our, in the, in the soul of America. And I, I'm, I'm concerned that not so much that Biden gets elected and, and, you know, has some modicum of success in, in keeping things running, which it seems to be only the only thing that he's really promising, um, and, and maybe the etiquette, right? He he will present the presidency in in a in a way that is more formalized than Trump does, right? The tastes of uh, of uh, the centrists in, in terms of Trump. Um, 
I, I, I'm worried that in a few years, it's like the roaring 20s again. You know, there mm-hmm. could be a worse candidate after Trump who knows how to listen to the deep, seething anger of a growing populace, even worse than 2016, even worse than 2019, and will take advantage of that. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think it's a ve- it's a very dangerous thing to ignore these less quantitative aspects of of why people vote the way they do, right? Populist anger, humiliation, shame, feeling condescended. Um, that can be a, dr- a tremendous driving force politically, and uh, the wrong person who knows how to utilize that, manipulate that in the right way, can be very dangerous. On the other hand. You know, a populist candidate with progressive values who's a bit more nuanced about this than than Bernie can be might be able to use that very well in a couple of years, you know. So, yeah, we'll just have to see. I agree 100 percent. I've always I've always said that if Biden wins, like, so what? In four years, we're going to have another Trump who's even worse. And it's just basically putting a lid on something that's bound to explode. <laughs> and yeah. and Trump, I think, has really unearthed this this um, roiling, brewing, populist rage. And of course, it was on the right. But I think that he's blazed a trail and we can never go back to politics as usual ever, ever again. And mm-hmm. we can either work with that for better or for worse. And I think what we're trying to do here is just whether it's the take from Kim Iverson where the left and the right wing populists need to team up together and run as a third party or mm-hmm. the left just needs to go full on with Bernie Sanders and try to break through from a from a purely left wing populist uh, angle. But I think that the populist angle in general, the populist fervor in general, is what we need to have our finger on, right? And and mm-hmm. to make sure mm-hmm. that that is channeled because it's already been unleashed. It's it's been um, fortified by the internet and yep. um, independent media, and we need to channel that energy in a healthy, productive way. And, and I think one disadvantage of the left is that there are so many Biden voting leftists that I personally tend to forget about because mm-hmm. I'm in the bubble with you, know, you guys and all my progressive media. And there are so many um, older Democrats and, and boomers who are very much fine and cozy with the way things are. And Biden or Hillary Clinton is, well, why not keep things going? We don't need radical yeah. structural reforms. And I think, mm-hmm. and I was, I was going back to 2015 and watching some of the debates with Trump and the other Republicans just to try to see how he succeeded in a way that Bernie didn't. And to mm-hmm. me, Trump was synonymous with the wall, right? The wall, I think we could do a deeply union analysis of the image of the wall <laughs> yeah. and the soul that that represented for those people in terms of restoring America in, in a kind of a xenophobic messaging. But the wall was really his... It was a brilliant tactic because it was very simple and it was an image that so strongly symbolizes so many things on a primordial gut level, right? And mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. kind of what's kind of his pathway into claiming victory. And I just don't, you know, the the Democratic Party and, and Democratic base, I don't know the the equivalent of that. And Bernie's trying his best with everything he can do, but I think there's still a reason why Trump succeeded in a way that Bernie hasn't so far. Agreed. Agreed. I think that that comes down to the um, the the conservative voting block being a lot more um, unconcerned about progressive identity politics. Uh, I think the the centrist uh, we were talking earlier the centrists are have been really able to utilize and weaponize identity politics for their own economic interests. 
Um, and that's mm -hmm. really been unfortunate because it's really been a divide and conquer situation for for the left. But also, you know, um, it is, I mean, it was really easy for Trump to, to say whatever he wanted on Twitter and right. whatever he wanted on the stage. And there was no internal divisiveness amongst the Republican uh, voting bloc to go, oh, he shouldn't say that. We're against. I mean, there there was that, but it was just so shrugged off by the voters, right? Like all of the you know the the bushes were 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 speaking down right. to Trump, right? Mitt and they Romney. were kind of Rip Mitt Romney. So like, yeah, they were all kind of posturing against Trump's extremities and and so on. But you know, I, being of a different voting block and different demographic that doesn't value identity politics and those kinds of formalities, these sort of working class emphasis, I think that's what really helped. He really kind of captured them. I don't know, like in, in, in progressive politics, it's, we, it's that synthesis that we don't have yet still, like between, you know, intersectional coalitions that are both identity and economic oriented really kind of coming together without really rubbing each other the wrong way. We saw that with the Bernie and Warren campaign straight up, you know? So, um, right. yeah, I, I do think it is a matter of like the, the, the increase of fragmentation on the left is a, is a serious issue. And, and I don't know if we can get over it in time to win this election, but yeah, I think you're right. And then also, you know, Bernie as, as great as he is and as down to earth as he, as he is, he's facing something that even Trump, wasn't trump is not going to really answer the concerns of the populist working class you know like this guy's a, a billion a billionaire um right and if anything he's he's kind of helped accelerate you know so much of of the, the republican agenda to deregulate everything etc you know like selling back national parks to be privatized so like economically he works better with the current system that we're under, you know, the Democrats have this sort of um, de delicate balancing act of formality and um, putting forward identity politics and progressivism, uh, while also kind of slowly doing the things that the Republican Party is doing, economically speaking, right? So like, they're just a little bit trickier about it. So I think Bernie represents something that is also not only is the left divided, but like, also, his 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 real policies are an immediate threat to both Republicans and Democrats in our whole economic structure. So, you know, I think I think he's running up against that too. So, um, I don't know what the answer to, to some of these problems are, though. You know. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. No, it, it's really true, though. I mean, as Glenn Greenwald said, everyone makes a huge deal of Trump's personality and tweets and what he says, or, but he's just governed like any other establishment Republican. You know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you look at his record, it, it's like, and you didn't see the T R U M P there. It would have, you would have thought that it was Mitt Romney or George Bush or <laughs> mm -hmm. whatever. And I think one of the other things too that I, I would, I just have to mention to include in the analysis was the cultural populism that Trump symbolized, and yeah. suddenly he was a giant megaphone for all of the the his supporters who felt disenfranchised and condescended on to hit back against the cultural elites and the political correctness mm -hmm. and the uh, and all of the you know Hollywood and the media and Bernie is is not a cultural populist right and he's not going after LeBron James <laughs> right no, no. he's he's, he's uh, or, or feuding with uh, what's your name uh, the actress that Trump was feuding with um 
Oh, I forget. But, I forget. <laughs> yeah, I can't. Believe, but um, you know, he's he's going after the establishment. He's going after the 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 economic and political elites, the corporations, the top one percent, the billionaires. You know, but mm-hmm. it's it's still that is that will satisfy a lot of people who are, who have Marxist leanings or populist leftist um, sentiments. But it doesn't satisfy all the people who want to hit back against cultural figures. Um, and and to and to really just give the middle finger to um, all of the the social justice warriors, you know. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So Trump, and, Trump and, had and a dual effect. He hit that impulse, and he hit uh-huh. the the political one too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and the whole drain the swamp narrative, um, right? Just, just no holds barred against these politicians. Just making fun of them on TV. It just the 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 satisfaction of that. We can't overemphasize that, right? Like we can't underestimate it. Just the emotional satisfaction of descending Trump like a weapon into the cultural elites and just devastating them with a with a winning vote, right? With a real political power driving force. Um, Bernie is not going to do that. Like Bernie, the Bernie that Michael Brooks puts on, like, can you believe what they said about me on national television? Like, he doesn't talk like that. He, he's, he doesn't go after people. He doesn't make fun of people. Sleepy Joe. You know, like, right. he's, he's not going to do that stuff. It'd be great if he did, I'll be honest, because he could possibly steal the 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 Trump voters back over um, if he did that. But he's not like that. He's he's a great guy. You know, he's, he's too nice. Um, and I don't think that could have I don't I don't necessarily think that was his Achilles heel. Um, But when it came down to the media narrative against him right over the past couple of weeks, um, it seemed like he was untouchable up until Super Tuesday. They were throwing everything at him and he was getting more popular and he was projected to that. People were saying this is Bernie's campaign to lose at some point. So I don't think it was necessarily. Uh, a fault of his character of being too nice but um that was assuming that the media couldn't finally institute some kind of counter narrative eventually right uh with with biden's success in south carolina and just switch everything over coronate him right uh all of the conservative uh, or conservative all of the centrist democrats dropping out and coronating biden and that narrative playing over 48 hours or so before super tuesday uh, profoundly influenced all the voters. I mean, they all, a lot of them have, you know, in the exit polls said they made their decision over that weekend and they were probably consuming cable news. So, you know, <laughs> what am I saying here? Um, Bernie was really nice. And for a while, it seemed like that wouldn't have been a problem if the media played that up and continued to play that up. But they switched the narrative against him in a way that um, that that spoke to or removed the permission to vote for him especially for the centrists. Uh, and that's really unfortunate. <laughs> but I think, you know, maybe a future politician who is a progressive and is a little bit more like the anti-Trump, right, in personality, might be able to uh, navigate this a little bit more carefully, you know. Um, Bernie has always been vulnerable to being too nice, and the media finally took advantage of it, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> Right, right. And, and I think there are also cultural and even in, in integral in spiral dynamics, right? There are kind of developmental implications where Trump, I mean, in those debates against other Republicans like Rand Paul, I mean, 
he is just an expert at lowbrow drag you into the mud um mm-hmm. and and you can be standing tall on your on your dignified high horse and he'll just drag you down and any kind of come trying to resist that in any way is just totally futile and you can throw yeah. everything you want at him and he just has this kind of anti-fragile quality of, of this devouring people <laughs> and <laughs> i think bernie like yeah he he is a nice guy he's a good guy like he's he's he has character and ethics and you know my friend my friend joel biden you know and it mm-hmm. would be so in like in a way that i think it would be incongruent for him to try to switch it up and to try to say yeah sleepy joel you know i watch this guy <laughs> i fall asleep or something uh-huh. and and you know dementia joel's brain is slow, right and and i i think uh-huh. that um he he does channel that anger towards the top one percent and to the corporations and the elites in the economic elites but for him to try to 180 would be it would be it would be really hard because even if he wanted to do that i don't even know if he he like authentically wants to do that but even if he wanted to i think he still has a demographic disadvantage compared to trump yeah, given how yeah. many biden supporters and and they, they have a kind of like you know normie bubble <laughs> that the democratic right. base is in and that kind of thing is for them it's hard to stomach which is why a lot of them don't like um trump so much right so even even if some of his policies are benefiting them economically so i think that mm-hmm. it's it's uh i agree with a lot of what you said and i do think that he he still has this kind of inherent disadvantage where he just can't let loose to the degree that trump did mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah no he he's um unfortunately it, but again like I, I it wouldn't have mattered if super tuesday didn't go the way it did but you know this is just not in his toolkit because like the 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 bernie that we needed after super tuesday was the bernie that could reignite that populist rage and yeah. uh and do it in that kind of like red meme sort of way that trump did <laughs> and that's not bernie you know right. um so it's just really it's just kind of tragic i don't really blame him because again this is just who he is this is why he's been so successful is because he's just continued to be himself um but yes at this point with so much stacked against him it would really require some some more red <laughs> finessing on the stage um, and we'll see. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen on the tomorrow uh, with the Biden Bernie debate, but um, it might even get canceled. Who knows? But uh, you know, I- I'm not looking forward to a Trump Biden debate. This like, oh god, I could just see Trump just yeah. like calling out his his dementia like on stage, saying like, "Oh, this is elder abuse. This is elder abuse. I feel real bad for you, Biden. They're really doing you a disservice." You know these crooks. You know, I mean, I could just see him just saying it on stage to the shock and just the the guffaw of everyone and the anchormen, you know, who are standing or sitting there, you know, asking the questions just in total shock that he went there. Um, and that, and then that being the twenty four seven news cycle, like tr- Trump calls Biden a dementia patient on national television. Can you believe he said it? Which will just ignite his base to vote for him. You know, that's how he won last time. Just like, can you believe Trump said this? on national television 24 <laughs> seven. I, I, I just, I, I don't know. Um, this again, it goes back to the media ecology thing, right? Like we see all this stuff. We see this coming a mile away. Right. Um, but what we're getting our information from is not where like the narrative on television is, is, is how it's laying it out, you know? So, uh, boy, <laughs> we're in for. Yeah. Something. 
Yeah. But, um, Don't take this the wrong way, but your Trump impersonation was better than your Bernie impersonation. <laughs> Sleepy Joe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, um, that might be a good place to end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. Um, we'll just have to wait and see for tomorrow. And uh, yeah, this is really fun. We went, uh, let's see, about 90 minutes. Um, yeah. Great, Ryan. So we'll see you and our new listeners uh, probably next week for the latest update from uh, the interval left. Awesome. Awesome. Well, this is a great start. Um, thank you. And uh, look forward to more. Awesome. <laughs>